Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to the local news and social artistry here on KOPN.org, your community radio station out of Columbia, Missouri, 89.5 FM on the dial. Uh, I'm your host, Dick Dalton. Each week, we have the pleasure of talking to someone who's building a more humane world from the inside out. And if you've been a listener in the past, you know we have a, a variety of people in very many uh, modalities of doing that. Today, a friend of mine from Lincoln University is my guest, Darren Dean, Assistant Professor of English and Creative Writing down at LU. Um, that's Lincoln University, Jeff City, Missouri, historically black college and university. Um, it's got a lot of history. And Darren, hey, good morning, Darren. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Actually, uh, folks, you're listening to this possibly in the afternoon. Uh, but I Zoom uh, meeting my uh, interviews and conversations. So, uh, if it sounds like it's morning, that's it. It is for us. So glad you're with us, uh, both uh, Darren and listeners, and uh, appreciate your support for local news in social artistry. Uh, Darren is also an author, uh, actually uh, award-winning author. So we'll be getting into his books and uh, writing and classroom and uh various things but first of all where are you from darren well this is always a difficult question for me to answer <laughs> and uh but i will say uh i say missouri right uh we moved around a lot when i was growing up and uh so if someone says what's your hometown I say, I don't know. I, I did actually live in Columbia for many years. And so I used to say that I'll just say Columbia and, and not have to answer that. And then they'd say, oh, yeah, which high school did you go to? <laughs> Rockbridge or Hickman? And then I'd say, well, I didn't go to either of those high schools. Uh, uh, oh, well, you're not really from here. Then You know, this is what I would get. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have lived all over mid-Missouri, southern Missouri, we moved to other states when I was a kid, but we always came back to Missouri. And mm -hmm. so uh, I'm in Jeff Jefferson City now, but we lived in Louisiana right before we moved back here in 2019 for about seven years. And uh, so I guess the best answer I can give is all over. <laughs> That's not because you're what they called a military brat necessarily, is it? No, 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 not at all. Uh, it wasn't as organized as that, you know, <laughs> I think, uh, my mom was young when she had me and it was, uh, it, back then you used to hear, I'm sure you'll remember, uh, you don't hear it as much now, but people used to always, if they were younger or even not so young, they'd say they were sometimes they were trying to find themselves. Oh yeah. You know, I, I'm trying to find myself and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And, mm -hmm. and that's what she was doing. <laughs> mm -hmm. And she, we would move somewhere and she wasn't there. She couldn't find herself there. So right. somewhere else. And, mm -hmm. and uh, it, so it, it was interesting to say the least. Yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, we should follow that up by asking, did she succeed? Well, uh, that's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, maybe some of us are temperamentally suited to keep searching no matter what. Okay. Fair answer. Yeah. Uh, Did you uh, uh, adopt her quest? Well, uh, (laughs) I think moving kind of got into my blood. Uh And so I've kind of continued the tradition uh, (laughs) of moving quite a bit, really. Uh Uh, And um, uh, I'll say of all the places I've been, it seems like you just... uh, 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 Someone will ask me, oh, where did you like living the best? And and it's oh. hard to answer that one. I would say, wow, I did this and I did that. And it was interesting to me. And mm-hmm. and uh, if, if for some reason I had to pick up and move again uh, real soon, I, I wouldn't have any qualms about it mm-hmm. uh, just because it's, it seems normal to me. It's, yeah. But it's not normal to other people. Yeah. And somewhere along the line, you uh, you got married. And now you have a, a partner to uh, negotiate that with. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Where did you and Cassie get together? Well, you know, I always like to say we we have a, a real exotic relationship. Uh, we were mm-hmm. set up on a blind date in high school, and uh, she went. I was. I lived in Mexico, Missouri, up in Audrain County, and she lived in Centralia. Oh, yeah. So that's what I mean when I say it was real exotic, because she was in mm. another school, right? Right. Went out a couple times, and then, you know, that was that. And then we ran into each other again and uh, a couple years later. And mm-hmm. We've been together pretty, ever since then. So. Yeah, wonderful. I like stories like that. <laughs> Which is ironic because now we've been married. We got married at a really young age. Don't ask me why, except when you're young, you think you have to hurry up and do everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so we've been married uh, for uh, over 30 years. And uh, it's ironic because my, my dad was married three times. My mm-hmm. My mom was married five times. So when mm-hmm. I was growing up, I thought, uh, oh, that's that's what you do. You're <laughs> probably going to be married three or four times. You know, it's, I I just thought that, well, that's what my parents did. That's probably what will happen. So, uh, well, but that didn't happen. <laughs> you've endured the test of time. Thank goodness. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. Um, you're a teacher at uh, an HBCU. Have you taught at other schools or is this your first teaching gig? Oh, yeah. yeah. Before I came here, I've been here for about for four years next month. That's why we were in Louisiana. I taught at LSU for uh, uh, about seven years. Uh and you know, I taught composition and creative writing, literature, and, and all these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, before that, I I was doing adjunct work oh. uh, all over here when we were still here in Missouri uh, at uh, Central Methodist, William Woods, MU, uh, Westminster. So uh, I, I got a taste of, 
of uh, of all of these different schools. Yeah, you could almost live in the same place and do all of those. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you could even have a few of those going at the same time. Well, you know, that's what I had to do back then. I had to cobble together classes, ah. you know, where I'd teach four or five. I remember one semester, I think I taught six classes. And one was a five-week uh, evening class. And I was never so relieved when it was done <laughs> because the the uh, the sheer number of students I had, I, I really don't know how I did it now, except... I was younger, so maybe that's that helped. <laughs> I remember wondering how I did it too, with uh, five sections of a uh, hundred and forty students in each section. But that was just for one year. It was that was a uh, later when the when the people really knew how big big my classes were. They one uh, department head had compassion on me and said. Nope, we're gonna limit it to da 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 da. da. So yeah, very good, very good. From then on, it was no more than sixty-seven. In still, each still a lot. <laughs> That's yeah, right. Well, since I teach mostly writing classes, you have to give so much feedback on everything you assign that it's mm -hmm. a load like that wouldn't be doable, you know. And uh, mine was just the opposite, really. Um, I, I could check off their uh, 25 things that they did by, okay, you, you've done it. You, that was what you were asked to do. Uh, so good deal. Yeah. But uh, we had our conversation times too. So writing, um, you have given me a book called, uh, let's see, I'll, still be here long after you're gone it's a series of your short stories that's right i found i found that you have a voice that was kind of consistent through those stories is that fair to say i think so i think so uh, uh it wasn't the same person in each story but there's a, a um, almost a, a layer of society <laughs> that I met in every story that seemed to be sort of consistent. Right, right. Well, you know, I kind of write in the tradition of uh, some of my writing heroes who are uh, grit-lit writers uh, like uh, Larry Brown, Harry Cruz, uh, Dorothy Allison, those are kind of the ma, ma and pa of the uh, grit lit. Uh, oh. Although, uh, uh, so I, I consciously was trying to write in that uh, in that vein, mm -hmm. mainly to just explain it a little bit. Grit lit is kind of a subgenre of just literary fiction or or realism realistic fiction uh sometimes it's southern sometimes it's midwestern it can be it, it's not limited to one part of uh the country really mm -hmm. uh, but it's usually about working class people and the the pro kind of problems that they face mm -hmm. in those lives yeah. right and, and not exactly. uh, yeah. not 
not secret agents or explosions yeah. and things <laughs> like that, but uh, kind of get delves into the hard everyday realities of life mm-hmm. and then even internally how that affects people. So uh, it took a while to develop that voice. You know, all some of the stories are third person, third person. Uh, but I think that's what most writers do, you know, when they're trying to become writers is who am I as a writer? What What's my subject matter? Yeah. Who am I? Who am I talking to? Right. And do I have any kind of insights that might resonate with a reader or surprise them or, or, uh, uh, you know, provoke them even, you mm-hmm. know, let's not above doing that. Mm-hmm is interesting because we live in a time when uh uh we we might say one thing and we think another and it's not thought is not always there's kind of an ideology now where that seems to to uh uh trump art and um i find that a little disturbing but uh as a writer i'm not going to let that stop what i what I'm trying to do artistically. I didn't quite understand what you meant when there's an ideology that will stomp on art or how did you phrase that? Or, or Right, right. Well, you know, it's funny. I just saw an interview with Quentin Tarantino recently. Yeah. Okay. And, and he, he made that statement and I was like, yes, I know what you're saying. And I think uh, I, it's not a secret. Uh, you're either, uh, down with it or you say i'm not doing that and uh, uh but it's it's no secret or no, nothing mystical behind it but it does seem to be that uh especially in liter in the literary world there's a certain kind of story people want to hear mm-hmm. and it's usually uh uh it kind of goes hand in hand with some of the things that we hear when it comes to being uh you know socially acceptable it, you know, it's mm. uh, you, you've got two sides, two extremes, just like in politics, Dick, you know, okay, uh, where some people say, I'm going to say whatever I want and don't mm. be a snowflake. Right. Okay. And then you'll have others that want to modulate everything that someone else says. Mm. I was offended when you said this. Mm-hmm. And frankly, you know, I remember as a college student, I had professors who started their classes when I was a student with, I'm here to provoke you, to provoke <laughs> your thought, right? Right, right. Now, uh, I don't know how that would uh, register with students and people today if you said, I'm going to provoke you. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I think in writing, what you're trying to express sometimes are the things people really think, feel, and experience not to on the one side say don't be a snowflake right not to purposefully uh, upset them or, or or something along those lines yeah be unfeeling mm-hmm. without compassion no i i would never want my writing to do that sure. but on the other hand uh there there's a lot of people out there who want to modulate everything that you say mm. on the in the story and they have a pretty powerful way of doing that, which is simply to reject your work. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and not publish it. Oh, okay. So, so this is at the level of publishers. 
Oh, certainly. Not certainly. Uh, just uh, library, school boards, uh, different public oh. entities. This is the publishers. Wow. Okay. I would say, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, what can you say about that? I, I, as a writer, I just say, well, I have to follow my own personal vision. Right. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you start trying to write in someone else's voice, be it an editor's <laughs> voice, another writer's voice, uh, and write about the concerns they think you should have, uh, to me, it's just uh, untenable. You might as well stop writing. Yeah. You sort of sold your soul to the, uh, the highest bidder or whatever, to the publisher. I mean, and even if you try, you might not be able to do that. So, mm -hmm. uh, it's well, it's so easy, you know. Seems like it would be less authentic. Uh, but, um, I don't know if the reader would pick up on it or not, but hey. Well, I've been seeing a lot of, uh, over the last, I'd say, 10 years or so, uh, writers I admire who uh, have left literary fiction and now they're writing mystery mm -hmm. or they're writing uh, in genres where you can still... Uh, say and do have your character say and do certain things that are now no longer uh, politically maybe acceptable or socially acceptable hmm. but i would say to that that uh, well uh, if you're writing about characters who are kind of on the line in our society uh, those kinds of niceties don't really express those characters lives mm -hmm. real lives or inner lives Mm -hmm. And yes, it'd be nice if we could all agree on this one thing, but uh, I don't see my characters doing that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't find any of your characters uh, doing that story after story. It was uh, it it seemed pretty realistic that uh, it was almost like how did Darren um, how was he the a fly on the wall in these rooms where these people were talking because, you know, I don't think he's lived that life. <laughs> uh, so it was really, you know, quite uh, impressive to me that you had the insights that you did into uh, the world of, of the, of the working man in that way. So uh, I compliment you on your ability to get in there and uh, be that fly on the wall that you know, tell me uh well in just a minute uh, i'm going to ask you to tell me but first i'm going to say uh let's take a short break and say folks uh, thanks for listening to glocal news in social artistry today on kopn.org your community radio station out of columbia missouri uh, 89.5 fm on your dial uh, we appreciate your support, your interest, and uh, as, also, as always, a community radio station uh, wants you to <laughs> support in every way you can. Uh, and in the past, by the way, 50 years, uh, KOPN has appreciated uh, the community support, and we're still here. And matter of fact, we're still here, and thriving uh, things are really uh, doing well our new building our new executive director some new staff 
um, things are humming. So your support has been much appreciated and uh, uh, we look forward to more in the future. My guest today is Darren Dean, uh, assistant professor of English and creative writing at uh, the school I taught at for 30 years, Lincoln University down in Jeff City, Missouri. I didn't know you, Darren. Uh, you came after I retired in 2015, and yet uh, somehow we've uh, found each other at a Tuesday morning coffee group. <laughs> That's and, right. I uh, love that group. Yeah, gotten together with uh, with friends that can just uh, ah, well, we're we're mostly retired. You're one of the few working stiffs. <laughs> <laughs> that keep us straight you know like oh yeah people still work i <laughs> <laughs> uh, appreciate that um so i was i was going to ask uh how do you become that virtual fly on a wall is it from all the reading that you've done of other writers is it um yeah. Have you been in all those bars yourself? <laughs> well, it's interesting. You would ask that. It's, you know, Bob Dylan has this song, uh, this recent song called I Contain Multitudes. Oh. And I, I try to exemplify that, uh, that sentiment. Hmm. I contain multitudes, you know. Uh, it does come from reading other writers it does come from uh you know i i meant i think we had talked about this before when i was growing up we moved around a lot that was a pretty non-traditional way of uh living uh mm -hmm. on the one hand uh, uh my mom did have jobs at bars mm -hmm. right sure and uh, i remember sometimes if i wanted to see her I would have to, in the afternoon, I would have to go to the bar that mm -hmm. she was working at uh, to talk to her. Mm -hmm. Or it got too late in the day when they would keep out for being a kid. Or, uh, you know, uh, uh, so uh, we grew up, I grew up in unusual circumstances. We were talking about this the other day in, in, my, in, the, in our coffee group. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I we lived in motels um, that had restaurants and bars mm -hmm. uh, associated with them. Uh, so I, I'll, some of the people that I write about, uh, uh, there's they're based on real people and real people's lives. Mm -hmm. Like one writer, I, I, some, I can't remember who said it now, but one writer said, put it very well. when when he said, uh, in fiction, we take one reality and we create another. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, what I the I think the thing that's interesting to me about writing is uh, you know the ideas you get, the images you get, the lines when you write them, you keep, you go over them and you try to make them better. You know, it's kind of, kind of like a a, a a quilt or. A, bricklayer you know you you just keep going over it uh until you've until you say it your brain stops saying it can be better it can be better you know mm -hmm. you you start off with this uh 
with just trying to get it down and expressing yourself, but then it's, it's a quite a process of revision mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and uh, change. Well, that triggered two things. Uh, one, I remember in that coffee conversation that all States motel came up in oh, Columbia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Which it, it isn't there anymore, but I remembered uh, in my past that my dad uh lived in all states motel for a time uh after he and my mom were separated and you know he needed a place to stay and that that worked for him and uh uh so it was just interesting that it came up in our conversation that uh that was a known commodity to you <laughs> Well, it, it is a, a life that uh, is more common than people probably realize, you know. Mm. Uh, but I, I will say, at the time, it seemed pretty exotic. I, mm -hmm. uh, but I just took it for granted that's the way it was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I can, in fact, this time of year, it makes me think when I was about 11, when we were living at the Monterey Motel in Mexico, Missouri, I can remember uh, we had Christmas under the Christmas tree in the uh, motel's office, right? They had it a little decor decorated there. Yeah, and so, yeah, yeah. So my mom took my presents and the, the manager and his wife had a, a little girl, a little younger than me. And so we had a little communal Christmas under the, uh, under the, that, that, that little Christmas tree in a motel office. So yeah, yeah. Uh, you find uh, community where you can. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The other thing uh, that you said that uh, got triggered was the author you sort of quoted that you take one reality and create a something else from it. How did how did you we, say that? Take we take one reality and create another. Okay. And it made me think that we all do that every day because we're taking in uh, our sensory inputs which is sort of reality uh, but we repackage it and it becomes something of its of its own within our minds and uh, my, my wife and I are <laughs> the classic watching a movie on TV and seeing two different things <laughs> you know? oh uh, sure uh so it's so i think more common than than we give place to that uh we may not have a place to write it and express it and demonstrate it but it just happens it's just commonplace that that we sure create is. our own realities from uh whatever we come in contact with make it fit make it fit something I, I reflect on that just about on an everyday basis where when you talk to someone, you hear what's on their mind when they talk to you mm -hmm. and you might think I've never considered that before, or I don't think that's the way to live your life or yeah. that's interesting, uh, more interesting than what I'm doing. And, and, and that's their reality, you know, yeah. you talk to someone who lived in the same place their entire life. I've heard this before many times in different places where I've lived, where the people will say to you, oh, I just love it here. I can't imagine living anywhere else. <laughs> and 
and I and I think, well, I can because I've lived a lot of other places. Yeah. I can imagine it just like that. But <laughs> but it's interesting how some people just and I envy it. You know, they love where they're from, and they don't want to. That there's nowhere else they'd rather be outside of a vacation. And and I've always kind of envied that that sense of belonging to this place or those people. Uh, uh, and and so in my writing, um, I think that comes out, you know, uh, one way or the other. Yeah. And uh, you, one of your stories um, had to do with a, a church, a church group, maybe close by uh, in central Missouri, but one of those uh, kind of on the side of the road uh, a bit mm -hmm a bit far out from the mainstream and uh and it seemed like there was a longing to belong even when community had sort of died mm -hmm. in a sense uh, from the inside and uh what we'll do to to try to perpetuate <laughs> the dream even though it, there's not much hope it seems for that to ever be rekindled but the feeling was there of, mm -hmm. uh, of wanting that to be the be, I, I won't give the punchline at the end of the story uh -huh. because kind of made it oh, that's cool <laughs> kind of paradise lost i guess so you a lot of stories have that element to them right like oh weren't things so wonderful at that time then well, the more you think about it, you say, well, maybe they weren't really that wonderful. Maybe that's nostalgia, you know. My uh, my wife and I met at a roadside church that was not your mainstream um, fair and uh, stayed there many, many years, uh, even after starting to teach and, you know, moving physically. But that was church. And uh, today you drive by and there's nothing left. Mm -hmm. The building is gone. The, the trailers that were around it are gone. <laughs> the fence that was around it is, it, it's like, I know that that existed for a period of time, but uh, ah, you know, things change and people move yeah, on. You know you know, I come up by that honestly, too, because for several years, I lived with a great aunt and uncle, and my great uncle was a lay minister. Hmm. When I, But when I lived with them, uh, I mean, church was our life, hmm. and it was kind of a charismatic, you know, spirit-filled kind of right. speaking in tongues, laying on of hands. It was pretty intense stuff, uh, at least from a kid's perspective, hmm. right? Same here. That and, was our experience. Yeah. yeah. And I, I uh, went to a little Christian school for a few years in elementary school. And so one, one way that that was really important to me was uh, we used to have to, every month we had to memorize a big uh, chapter from Ooh. the Bible. Oh like my goodness. Second Corinthians 13, you know, in the King James version, which is, you know, beautiful to read. Mm -hmm. uh but uh uh when you, when it talks about we see through a glass darkly mm -hmm. uh, well when you're in grade school you definitely do because half of it you're 
I don't think you really know exactly the depths of what you're yeah. you're talking about even, but the language itself having to do that every month mm-hmm. and then recite it and they'd give you a gold star. Oh, you did it. And they'd put it up on your, yes, you did it. Mm-hmm. Well, but that language and certain things related to that, it, it really gets inside of you. And, uh, you know, I feel like in some of the things I write, mm-hmm. it, this kind of language comes out like a uh, a Faulkner or a Cormac McCarthy. Not not that I'm at their level, but, uh, you know, if you read my Civil War novel, The Black Harvest, mm-hmm. you're definitely going to come up against some biblical language. You oh, know? okay. Yeah, well, let's, let's get into your other books because uh, you've got some... Uh, even a new one coming out soon, but you have uh, several that you've already um, gotten out there and uh, people have commended you for. So uh, here's your promo time. (laughs) Uh, What was your first book? Well, my first book was called Far Beyond the Pale. When I was in grad school, I started writing that uh, and uh, uh I wrote a rough draft of this novel in about five months, which is pretty fast. You know, I worked shop some of it in grad school. And I had, uh, at the time I had a couple of professors. I had Clyde Edgerton, who is pretty well known in the Southeast. He's got quite a following there. Uh, uh, he gave me some good feedback on it. And, and I remember some students in the class who came from a different, economic strata than -hmm. what I had come from. (laughs) Uh, They said, Oh, your characters are so mean to each other. Mm. Why are they so mean? Maybe you should tone that down. Right. Mm. Well, my professor kind of spoke up because it's one of these unwritten rules in some workshops, the writer cannot speak and he has to listen to the criticism of, Mm -hmm. of everyone that's read the work. Right. Mm -hmm. And he stepped in and he said, well, actually, Darren is writing in this tradition that writers I know, uh, like Larry Brown, and he he named a bunch of others, are are writing in. And so it's not about suburbia and it's not about the upper middle class as much. Uh, It's uh, so if you wonder why the characters are mean, it's because people can be mean and cruel and it's. it's a little different world yeah. where it's more on the surface. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so early on, he, he was a big supporter of my work mm-hmm. and uh, helped me talk to agents and editors. And uh, uh, I, I thought, wow, in grad school, I thought, wow, I'm going to be a wonder boy. I'm going to get this book published and they'll go, wow, this guy is something else. And uh, all the writers I know will recognize my genius and we'll be best friends. And, and, uh, uh, but things didn't really pan out that way. It, I ended up rewriting that book over 10 years, probably. Oh, wow. And I had no idea that that's what would happen. But, you know, an, an agent would get a hold of it and they'd say, yeah, I love this, I love the voice if you could rewrite it this way, this way, this way and get it, get it back to me. Well, you know, when they say that with a novel, it's going to take four to six months, probably minimum. Hmm. 
you have a, another life, like a job and family. Yeah, right. and no matter how hard you work, because sometimes what they're saying is if this were a different book, I would love to sell it. <laughs> but, they, but I did was, you know, too naive, I guess, to realize that's maybe what some of them were saying. Mm -hmm. But they'd say, send it back to me. You'd send it back to them. Well, a lot of times you'd get a uh, a form letter rejection as though you'd never had a conversation. I'm like, I've got the emails. I've got the letters. We talked on the phone. You're sending me a form letter. Uh, I, I was kind of like, as a young writer, I was outraged by that. I was like, you're going to act like you didn't ask me to make these changes and you're not even going to comment on them. And that's, hey, that's business. That's how the real world works. And or you could get back to them. It could be an editor at a big publishing house. And they'd say, oh, uh, you would get these sometimes strange responses. You know, they, well, uh, my wife got cancer. My mom got cancer. The, you know, all this stuff has happened, so I can't take this on. Oh, oh my or, God. Or you would send them an email four to six months later, and it would bounce back. And it would say, so-and-so no longer works here. We can move pretty quick in publishing. Uh -huh. They can move from house to house yeah. like that. Um, so I, that's how I ended up spending 10 years rewriting that novel. Oh, my God. Oh, they, they wanted to be this. I was more than willing. I was like that song by the, you know, the paperback writer. You know, remember that song? <laughs> I was, really yeah, I'll jump in there. I'll rearrange it. I'll, I'll, I wasn't a hard-to-work-with writer at all. And then I realized after a while, this is getting to be ridiculous. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now when someone says totally rewrite it, so it's from the dog's point of view, uh, <laughs> I say, well, I don't think I can do that. You know, I, I can give me a contract and then uh, I'll make these changes. Well, no, 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 no. They're not going to commit to that, you know, so it's kind of a communal decision. It feels like sometimes where the, the, an agent might say, you know, I love this, but this isn't something I can sell. But if someone else is interested in it, let me know. Oh, And I say, well, if someone else is interested in it, I'm going to go with them. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, you think writing a good book is all you have to do. Uh, but then you've got to take the writing hat off put the marketing hat on mm -hmm. now sometimes i've i hear from an agent who'll say the exact opposite mm -hmm. when i was a young writer uh you have uh you know uh wait no one knows anything about you mm -hmm. you don't have a platform that's what they would say mm -hmm. what's your platform you don't have a platform well, they mean, where have you been published and how do people uh, know you? And right, are you a right. celebrity and, or mm -hmm. whatever the case might be, mm -hmm. right? What's going to sell your book and mm -hmm. who's going to buy it? Well, now that I've been around the block and I've got publishing and books under my belt, now they say, well, really, some say, we really want to work with young writers. Oh, my goodness. You know? <laughs> and, and so... You can't believe, you can't take mm -hmm. to heart what people are telling you. You know, I remember too, one time an editor said, uh, well, you know, the problem with your novel is it's a coming of age novel and no one wants to read coming of age novels. 
Oh. Um, well, of course they do, because everyone comes of age. Right, right. That'll never, that'll never not be interesting. Romeo and Juliet never gets old, no matter how many ways you package it. But so Far Beyond the Pale was my first one. Uh, you know, I, I didn't sit down and write these one after the other and do everything and make it perfect. Some of these were going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would write it's not an economical way to do it or a, <laughs> or a way that anyone should should go about it mm -hmm. but it's what i did and uh i really i knew i wanted to write novels and uh uh so i was working on you know when i started my civil war novel uh i thought i'll do i'll spend a year doing research on the black harvest mm -hmm. it had a different title I'll spend a year doing uh, research and then maybe another year or two writing it and I'll send it off and it'll be declared a genius work. And won't that be wonderful? Well, uh, I ran into a lot of problems. One in the early on being almost completely ignorant of what was going on in Missouri during the civil war. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, you know, I would make a few false starts at it and go, I don't know anything. I'm an idiot. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I need to spend more time researching. <laughs> well, it turned into a 20-year project. Oh, my. And if I had known when I first started that if someone had come to me and said, it will be published, fortune teller, but it'll take 20 years, mm. I would have said, no, thanks. I'm not going to do that. Wow. That sounds mm. crazy. Mm-hmm. But I did do it, and it's probably been my most successful book just in terms mm. of maybe sales and recognition. And it was published mm. by the University of West Alabama Press. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, by the way, folks, uh, Darren Dean talking here um, about his book, The Black Harvest, a novel about the Civil War. Um you're listening to Glocal News and Social Artistry if you just happen to be tuning in to KOPN today, uh, 89.5 FM. Uh, we're glad you're with us. Uh, I'm Dick Dalton, the host of this uh, show, Glocal News and Social Artistry. Each week we get to talk to someone building a more humane world. And Darren Dean is the man today. That's D-A-R-E-N, Dean, D-E-A-N. and uh, look him up uh your website uh well if you look at up your name your website shows up uh it's one of those wix uh sites wix and, uh, yeah, yeah wix.com and uh you see the books that he's uh, published and uh, a little bio about him and uh, some of the awards received for writing and uh uh, even for teaching, you've got an award here at uh, Lincoln uh, recently uh, for your scholarship. So congratulations on that. Uh, I didn't know the dean did that uh, for folks. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I, I never had a chance to write. I was so busy with teaching back at the time. But uh, uh, it, it's good to know you have both the opportunity and, and uh, the willingness to do that. I overwhelmed them with quantity of publishing. So <laughs> they couldn't say no. They couldn't no. say no. It was too much, too much work. And your new book that's coming out this next year is uh, R O A D S, Roads, right? Roads. 
And right. Somehow it's all capital letters or for some reason, uh, give us just a little reason why we should be looking for this new book. It only well, took 10 years to write or was it a, <laughs> you know, it, it's hard to say because I, I never put a stopwatch on any of these things. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm getting, I'm thinking, when did I start that? Yeah. And starting to be a long enough ago, I'm like, I'm not a hundred percent sure anymore. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't really matter at this point to me either. But uh, Rhodes comes out in February, and uh, it's already got a nice uh, blurb uh, from a San Francisco writer named John Boylard, who uh, I I kid him a little bit, and I call him the, you know, he, he's sort of, a, I call him John Boylard Bukowski, because he's got kind of this B Charles Bukowski feel to his writing a little bit. And then... Uh, uh, Ron Rash, the North Carolina writer, who uh, I really admire. He he was nice enough to kind enough to give me a blurb. You can see there on the website. And um, Rhodes is about a a, a teenage girl whose uh, sister goes missing, and she's kind of she lives with an uncle, and uh, their family is kind of known for being involved in drugs, uh, with meth and, and other illegal activities. And there's kind of a, in this County, there's kind of a, a warring, uh, another family group. It's sort of a Hatfields and McCoys type of a situation. And, but no one will do anything about the fact that her sister's missing, but they mm. think she is involved with this other family. And the problem is the local police are, re the uh, local sheriff is related to this other family. Mm. And so it's a touchy situation, but she decides, even though she's a teenager, she's going to find out, she's going to get to the bottom of it herself if she has to. And, um, so this is a, a mystery. Um, is this sort of your first mystery? Uh, you know, I would say, as much as mystery, I tend to write, like if you look at this veil of tears, that novel and, and this one, there's, there's, it's kind of a mystery literary fiction. And I think there are some Gothic elements to mm -hmm. these, mm -hmm. these books too, sort of like a William Gay out of Tennessee. He was a writer. I, I really admired mm -hmm. and uh, not as well known as he ought to be, but mm. he's one of those writers, other writers, no. Oh, cool. right. William Gay. William Gay. Mm -hmm. Is that G A Y? G A Y. Okay. Now, I've seen some interviews with him, and when he talks, you can tell he's the real thing. He's got the the accent and the look, and the, or he did, you know, when he was alive. Uh -huh. Yeah, if you were talking to him now, it would be another genre that you would be uh, <laughs> writing. Ah, paranormal stuff. What do you do in your creative writing classes? Are you are you interested in your students finding voices or finding what, what what's your goal in your classroom situation? Well, uh, you know, it's a little different. You know, in an intro class versus. Uh, like an advanced writing class. I try to do, I try to do a little different things. Uh, my intro class, uh, 
I, I had a wonderful teacher named Marilyn Lake uh, when I went to the University of Missouri. And the way she did her intro class was a way that I realized not a lot of people were doing later on, but I really thought it was a great approach where she gave you writing assignments to do, but we really didn't do much workshopping. It was more like talking about the basics, the building blocks, right? Mm -hmm. Characterization, setting, tone, reading other writers, you know, the great writers, reading their, uh, uh, you know, excerpts from their work to see how they establish these things, and, which I guess is, you know, I think is pretty typical, but I, uh, I think uh, these days, because there's so many, there's the internet and there's so many competing, so much competing media. Uh, and they were saying this when I was a kid too, you know, uh, but uh, I don't think, I think as time goes on, there are some people that read a lot. And, but then there's a lot of students that come in who want to write, but maybe they haven't read that much. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's a chance for them to, to do some reading of you know published writers do some writing and try to learn things kind of incrementally uh, with advanced right more advanced writers i try to tell them the things that i wish someone had told me about writing about the process of writing and the and the problem is a lot of writers are a lot of us are taught to write by people who might know a lot about grammar, but they don't know really anything about writing. <laughs> and uh, I, I go all the way back to, like, say, when you're in junior high or high school, and they teach you over and over the rules of grammar, right? Mm -hmm. And they'll say, read this story and answer the 10 questions in the textbook at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And so you're thinking of the answers. You read the story. You're thinking of the question, you're thinking of the answer, so you write your answer. Little unbeknownst to you, though, your teacher isn't going to grade your content. She's only going to grade your grammar, right? Ooh. And so minus one, minus two, minus one, mm -hmm. minus two, right? Mm -hmm. As though there's a rubric big enough like uh, to contain all the things you did right mm -hmm. or wrong. You know, it's, it's the difference between holistic grading and grading every uh, grammar error. <laughs> right, right. And uh, so you come away from that uh, as a young person realizing I'm a terrible writer. This is not something I'm good at. Oh, yeah. And, and that's the message that you get. Well, I can't do it because I, I don't understand grammar. I broke all the rules. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just bad at it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because there aren't any comments about the content because I can justify if it's a grammar rule saying minus two, right? Right. right. Uh, you broke that rule. But the way real writers work is you can't think about grammar and what you're writing at the same time. That's like trying to listen to two or three people talk at once. Mm. Your brain can't process all that. So you just mm -hmm. end up saying, what, what, what? I'm sorry, what? Mm -hmm. you know, oh, one person can speak, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the same way. Hopefully you've learned something about grammar, uh, but really you should be focusing on the content in a rough draft so you mm -hmm. can get some flow.
Sure. Writing. Good and advice, so yeah. these are the things I try to convey to my students mm -hmm. uh, is just write. Don't worry about commas and periods that much. Don't worry about spelling. Don't worry about looking something up if you can stop yourself. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. uh, so in an upper level class, I look to someone like Robert Olin Butler, who he's got this book called From Where You Dream, hmm. uh, who talks about writing from the unconscious. Oh, cool. Uh, someone like Madison Smart Bell, who's got a book called Narrative Design. Mm -hmm. And there, early on, there's a section where he talks about, you know, guided imagery and how to really connect with, with something deeper, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. in your writing. Mm -hmm. And so I'll, I'll put my, my students through those paces, because that's a different kind of writing mm -hmm. than the kind of writing I was taught, which is you write a sentence and then you go back and you try to make it perfect <laughs> grammatically. Mm -hmm. Now only then can you proceed to the next sentence. Uh oh. Yeah. Well, this is a very painful way to yeah. to write. You just but no, I won't say no, but no real writer I know writes that way. And Darren going to write an entire book that way. <laughs> I'm just looking at the clock. We only got a minute left. Can you oh, believe it? I'm a big talker. Well, it's just gone so smoothly. It's been great. Darren Dean, that's D-A-R-E-N, Dean, D-E-A-N, uh, assistant professor down at Lincoln University in English and creative writing, author of, uh, let's see, Far Beyond the Pale, uh, The Black Harvest, and soon coming out, Rhodes, R-O-A-D-S, uh, we want to keep an eye out for you. Uh, thank you for being with me today. You have 10 seconds for a final comment. <laughs> thank you for having me, Dick. Thanks so much. We've talked about this for a while, so I'm, I'm glad we were able to do it. I am too. I am too. This is uh, actually, I'm going to write down some of these authors that you've been mentioning. So thanks so much. And friends, remember, wherever you are, that is your world. Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it, because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care. Talk to you soon. turns cold in the midnight the air is quicksilver dry stars shine like souls in flight over snow in the black mountain sky the coyote measures the distance between him and the fear in my heart he leads me down to a canyon and then disappears in the dark Then disappears in the dark
Your children are calling, I tell him Calling for you to come home You can't be a cold, heartless father Who would leave his babies alone But maybe those aren't your children Just phantoms that you want me to hear Maybe that's only a shadow Instead of the love I fear Instead of the love I fear Oh, Coyote, you tricked me again Who do you think you are? Enemy lover, devil or friend I can see you behind yonder star I can see you behind yonder star Conquistadors lost in the ground Coyote stands undiminished He is watching, not making a sound Why is the canyon rim laughing? Why does the sidewinder cry? Oh, the song dog is up to his old tricks tonight Now who in the devil am I? devil am I And I said, oh coyote, you tricked me again Who do you think you are? Enemy, lover, devil or friend I can see you behind yonder star I see you behind